Welcome back to Foreign Romance with me, Maida Sharifi. Today we have all eyes on China, in fact this week, as the 20th Communist Party Congress is taking place. On this week's episode, we will be dissecting what the China threat is all about. We will be talking about Taiwan, foreign policy and more. Joining me all the way from Beijing today is Einar Tangen, a senior fellow at Taihai Institute and founder of Asian Narratives. Welcome, and thank you for joining us on the show. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here, Maida. Thank you. As we mentioned earlier in the introduction, taking place right now is China's 20th Communist Party Congress. And to sum it up for listeners who are not sure what this is, it's a week-long political event, and it's very important. It will decide what direction the country will take in the next five years. China's president, Xi Jinping, has spoken about Taiwan this week. He said that it is up to the Chinese people to resolve the Taiwan issue. And there is a perception that China would not renounce the right to use force. So, Mr. Tangen, Taiwan has become a hot topic, especially with the outbreak of the Russia and Ukraine war. There is this argument coming out of the US and from its allies in Asia and Europe that this war has emboldened and will embolden China. What is the view from China and what direction will they be going in the next five years in terms of Taiwan? Well, that's, that's the thing. There's always different narratives. So from uh, the US, and as you said, there's this narrative that somehow China and Russia are in league and that uh, uh, China is studying the blueprint of what happened in Russia uh, in terms of Taiwan. Uh, it just isn't true. I mean, it's actually quite the opposite. Uh, China is very concerned about what they see as uh, the U.S. provocation of, of war in Ukraine. And what I mean by this is, if you go back and, you know, if everyone knows Henry Kissinger, right? You know, he's almost 100 years old. He's the, you know, the font of information, wise, very, very wise man. Uh, he did some uh, not so nice things when he was younger, but he is an elder statesman. Uh, Keenan, who was, um, you know, one of the original Cold War warriors, uh, the current head of the CIA and Biden himself have all said, if we go into um, Ukraine, it means war with Russia. So if you know you're going to go into a war with Russia by doing something and then you do it, uh, it's uh, you know, understandable that there is a conflict. So you know, China is scratching his head. What, what was the point of this? Why provoke Russia? And uh, to a certain degree, they think, well, they, they wanted to lessen uh, Russia's uh, you know, stance in the world. But they also, um, you know, there's this, if you look at the effect, I mean, Europe was getting closer and closer to Russia, 40% of its of its energy, especially for Germany, it was coming from Russia. Uh, there were these big pipelines that, you know, sent cheaper gas. Uh, you know, the, if you have to import it from the U.S., it has to be compressed. Then it has to be sent on special ships that have to keep it at 162 negative centigrade. All right. And then it has to be have to go to a receiving station. It's much more expensive than just putting in a pipe and sending it. So. They have this, uh, you know, from the Chinese perspective, they say, well, gee whiz, I mean, don't the Europeans see that now they're dependent on the U.S., uh, both for food and for energy? And, you know, they're saying, well, how far will the U.S. go? Will the U.S. try to use Taiwan as, uh, you know, the same way that they've used Ukraine? And in, in essence, start some sort of conf uh, confrontation. Uh, encouraging the current regime to declare independence, uh, sending so many arms uh, that are not defensive in nature, basically offensive in nature, uh, that you know it crosses a red line for China. Now, you know, when I say this, I said, you know, a lot of people say, well, you know, why not? Why why shouldn't Taiwan decide its own fate? And it's 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 an independent country. Actually, it isn't. It was kicked out by the United States of the United Nations. Um, back in the late 70s, um, what they did is they, uh, the U.S. signed uh, three treaties, uh, three communiques with China. And in it, they said explicit, not, not, you know, roundabout or maybe, they said, there's only one China. And the uh, resolution between China and Taiwan is one nation, all right, is up to the Chinese, all right? So it was all settled. The, uh, Taiwan was kicked out of the United Nations. They have no presence there. And 
where things go along. But then as China rose, uh, most recently, this whole issue has become, you know, this lightning rod. Uh, the U.S. is saying, gee whiz, you know, oh, China's getting big. They're going to invade Taiwan. Well, they could have invaded Taiwan at any time. <laughs> it's not exactly. And you have to understand, Taiwan's economy, 43% of their entire economy and 10% of their workforce is directly connected to mainland China. So it's not like the two separate places and, you know, there's nothing going and they send fruit baskets to each other. They're viscerally connected. And it's very important to Taiwan, which is an export powerhouse, to have not only, you know, U.S. and Europe and the rest of the world as clients, but also, uh, obviously, China, mainland China. So we have this situation where the U.S. has been known uh, to break treaties. They did so with the Kyoto Climate Accord. They did again with the Paris Climate Accord. They broke the, the treaty unilaterally uh, with uh, the JCPOA. This was the Iranian um, uh, n nuclear proliferation uh, treaty that said that they would back off in exchange for uh, taking off sanctions. Uh, and there have been uh, other areas. And the U.S. Uh, talks about UNCLOS, the UN Convention of Laws of the Sea. And they criticized China because they say China isn't adhering to it. Well, the U.S. isn't a signatory to that. <laughs> so it's kind of strange. Also, you know, International Criminal Court. Well, you know, this is an, the U.N. was basically, you know, the brainchild of the, of the U.S. Woodrow Wilson. You know, let's 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 have a place where we can all agree to mend our affairs and, and have some sort of accountability. That was the International Criminal Court. You know, it, we were, people remember that, you know, uh, big time political criminals been hauled before it. The U.S. doesn't recognize its jurisdiction. So in some ways, the United States is a rogue state. It starts wars in Afghanistan. All right. It, start, it started a war in Iraq. No one, can, no one can yet figure out exactly why they did it. There's claims about weapons of mass destruction and things like this, but they were never found. And there have been other questions about, you know, in Yemen, Syria, you, you name it. So right now, the most warlike country in the world is the United States. In fact, since the fall of the Berlin Wall, you know, when the U.S. quote won, all right, and the Soviet Union uh, was partitioned off and, and uh, you know, separate countries, the U.S. has had troops on foreign soil and been in conflict every single year. So this idea of, you know, from within the United States, everyone says, no, 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 we're the policemen of the world. We took on a heavy responsibility after World War II because the Europeans can't be trusted. You know, they, they led us into World War I and they led us into World War II. We're determined that will never happen again. So United Nations, all of these things, the Marshall Plan to stimulate economic activity worldwide, uh, this was all started. And there was this belief that America is exceptional because we don't have the baggage of the old world. And that therefore we could be fair and that our system, our liberal democratic capitalism, uh, should be really used by everybody. You know, one size should fit all. There could be a few variations, parliamentary or something like that, but basically it should always be follow our dictates. And you know, if this wasn't something we just said, it was something that we pushed through the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank. Anytime a country said, look, you know, we're in dire straits, we need some money. They said, yes, yes, we can give you some money. But, you know, you're going to have to change the way you do business. We don't like it. Uh, we're your bankers. You know, you, we're going to instruct you how to run your company. So, you know, lo and behold, today, a lot of countries look at the U.S. with perhaps a different view than things. And you especially see this in the global south. Countries that were under, uh, you know, the rule of uh, colonial rule at different times, South America, Africa, Asia, India, China, you know, in the Middle East, they're, they're, they're looking at this and saying, well, gee whiz, I, you know, we're not that uh, interested uh, in this kind of colonial attitude. So when war comes to Ukraine, right, while China is scratching its head, the rest of the world said, gee whiz, when we have wars in, and we currently have wars, Yemen, Syria, things like, it's, it's not a litmus test for freedom. You're either forced or against us. Oh, it's a complex situation involving those people, right? So 
you know, from their perspective, this is why do we care about a war which, you know, wasn't necessary? It seems it was, you know, partially provoked uh, by the U.S. The Europeans kind of slept, walked into this uh, situation. Why is this our concern? Our concerns are the fact that we have a pandemic that the United States, who can, has put more than $50 billion towards Ukraine's war effort in the last seven months, couldn't find $50 billion to inoculate the world. Not that they would have had to pay for it all themselves, but they just couldn't come up with more than one or two billion. Now, if they had done that, right, trillions could have been saved. If the world had been vaccinated, many of the um, you know, the uh, mutations that occurred uh, would have been stopped. There had been less of them. The world would have been safer. So many of these countries, including China, say, well, we don't really buy into this. We're, we're not going. Now, for China, there's a separate issue. They are uh, not happy that Russia went into Ukraine, and I for a couple of reasons. One, they have this principle about non-interference uh, in the affairs of other countries. And then they've, they've held to that. They haven't started any wars or anything like that. The U.S. says, oh, they're spying or they're trying to manipulate elections. Well, that's very rich coming from the United States since we do this all the time. <laughs> I mean, and, and you know, quite blithely, I mean, uh, 72 times uh, uh, since uh, uh, World War II, we have uh, embarked on regime change, <laughs> 66 clandestinely, six openly. So we, we're not a stranger to this idea of trying to uh, make countries uh, do what we want. But for, for China, um, they have this issue that uh, they didn't want Russia to invade. And it wasn't just for the principle. There was also something called the Belt and Road Initiative. This was something that the Chinese came up with to deal with the fact that you know, there are 400 bases, U.S. bases, which basically surround China all along the seacoast. It goes all the way from Korea, Japan, Philippines, uh, down to uh, Guam and things like that. 400, can you imagine 400 bases? Wow, that's a lot. Anyway, so you know, China said, we don't want to get into a choke point because China's weakness is that it has to import resources, right? Its strength is it imports these resources, adds value, and then is able to sell them abroad. And they, and they have been one of the cheaper suppliers, which is why they have become this kind of manufacturing hub, not, not only for Asia, but the entire world. So they were concerned that the U.S. might try to apply pressure and cut them off. So all this talk about the South China Seas and how China might cut off trade, well, 40% of their GDP is tied to that. I don't think you're going to cut off 40% of, <laughs> of your economy. So it, it's just not, it's not real. Uh, there, but China was concerned about. It. So they started to develop these idea of land routes. You know, and obviously, if they just wanted a simple land route, they could have gone to Russia. Russia has the Trans-Siberian uh, Highway, also the Trans-Siberian uh, Railway. They could have built, you know, parallel tracks <laughs> going through it. They could have gotten directly to Europe from Russia, but they didn't. Uh, they set about having multiple entry points that would not be controlled by one other nation. Right. And one of the keys to that was Ukraine. So when Russia invaded Ukraine, huh, that put an end to uh, any alternate routes other than by sea uh, for um, China. Uh, there's one that kind of goes uh, through Pakistan, but that that has issues, too. So they're in this situation where they feel that the U.S. sees them as or well, they shouldn't feel the way they've been told they're a competitor. Uh, that they're bad news, they steal things, they're, they're, the whole system is antithetical to everything that the U.S. believes in, and you know, they're somehow very evil. So they know this is there. Um, they were not happy about uh, the Ukraine situation. But on the other hand, there is, they're very, very worried about Taiwan and what the U.S. would do there. And in the case that there is an, uh, you know, a preemptive pushing of Taiwan towards the red line, they want to make sure that they have at least one ally, and that would be Russia. Now, they don't. Russia and China don't have a defensive agreement, um, but the U.S. has to put it in its calculation that these two countries will stand together if, in fact, provoked. Now, truth is, China hasn't provided any armaments 
They've, they've done regular trade with Russia. Yes, uh, they're doing regular trade with Ukraine to the extent they can. But they are not providing armaments or anything like that, uh, which is quite different from the U.S., which, of course, is providing a full set. And unfortunately, that could walk us into World War III. If Russia has said repeatedly, and uh, for some reason to deaf ears, that if you're supplying the munitions and bombs and systems to kill our people, you are involved in this war and you are the ones expanding it. And it's in essence the same as attacking. You know, if I give you the gun to shoot somebody else, they're not going to say, cheat whiz, I guess the guy who gave you a gun knowing you were going to shoot me is okay. You know, uh, So <clears throat> that's a long answer to your very short question. Thank you so much because you actually touched on so many topics and subjects I wanted to dive into. Uh, so thank you so much for that. I did take some questions from listeners as well, which kind of links back to what you were saying about um, the US's relation with China. So you spoke about neutrality in the Ukraine-Russia war, and that is something that the US has had a problem with. It's made clear, you know, China isn't openly condemning Russia, even if behind closed doors, they disagree, um, they disagree with um, Russia's move. So this is one kind of diplomatic strife that's going on. And there's been another one that's been happening for some time. And it's to do with the Uyghur Muslims in Xinjiang. And uh, China has been called out many times by the US, its allies, and even in the UN for the treatment of Uyghur Muslims. And China's response has been quite defensive to some extent. It's argued that it's an internal affair. And it has been from China's national security point of view, it's a campaign to control extremism and terrorism in that particular region. The question from the listener is, has this campaign made any impact to de-radicalize China? And I'd also like your take on the diplomatic strife it's caused. Sure. All right. So it's not a simple uh, issue. I mean, there are uh, over 25 million Uyghurs uh, in a nation of uh, 1.4 billion. They're not all located uh, in Xinjiang. Uh, the vast majority are. Now, there were a series of events, violent uh, events, where Uyghurs attacked uh, Han people. Uh, I don't know if you recall, but they, there was a group of them who went down a subway station and they just slaughtered children, old men, etc. This is something that the Chinese authorities cannot uh, take lightly. All right. It's not something where they can say, oh, gee whiz, that just happens. Okay, we'll excuse it. The Chinese public, I mean, when I walk around in Beijing, or when my, I, my daughter is uh, 28, I never worried about her walking around in Beijing, Shanghai, or any part of China, uh, even at four o'clock in the morning. All right, that, that would be impossible in the US and in most European cities I know, um, because safety is assumed. And once you have that expectation of safety, the idea that you could be standing on a subway and be murdered by some knife-wielding uh, extremists uh, is disturbing, and it's, it's completely against it. And there's only one party in China. So no matter what happens, they have to take responsibility. They have to come up with a solution. So they started uh, different things. They, they, they cracked down. They tried to lighten up. They tried different things, and it wasn't working very well. And then they decided, look, it's time for Xinjiang to be like the rest of China. Now, many people say, oh, cultural assimilation and things like this. But, you know, the, the truth is in China, it was always, uh, not always, but it was unified a couple thousand years ago. Um, but that doesn't mean that everyone spoke the same language. I mean, one Harvard linguist uh, cataloged over 5,000 languages, separate, you know, different ways of speaking. Um, and that was only on the, east, on the eastern seaboard of China. He hadn't even got in. I mean, villages that were five kilometers apart Right, didn't speak the same language. In order to communicate with each other, they would have a, a third, a trade language. Now, in terms of writing, uh, the writing is all the same. But because characters have no phonetic uh, clue, it's just a character, you know the meaning, but you don't know how to pronounce it, and there's no clues in the characters. It's not like the APCs all right, or uh, other 
Aramaic languages. So you had a, a huge plethora, and there was a lot of division. Um, one town didn't like another town, and in the old days, sometimes there would be, you know, uh, uh, you know, one town would go over and slaughter the people in the other town. Not not acceptable. Uh, so things under a central order were considered to be good. Uh, that's why they had such a long tradition of these emperors. Now, when the Communist Party comes in, they have to unite uh, China. Uh, the new China is not like the old China. It's not an agrarian, uh, you know, nobility riding on the backs of, uh, you know, serfs. Uh, they said, no, it's going to be a new country. But in order to have this kind of sense of unity, they need to have a common language. And part of that is so that, you know, labor can go from one place to another. If I can't speak the language, I can't go somewhere else. What am I going to say? I don't even know how to take instructions and things like this. So that was a very important part of what they did. Uh, they created a separate, uh, simplified uh, Chinese uh, pinyin, uh, so it's easier. You can type it out on uh, on a uh, on a phone and things like this. And they did everything possible to try to bring it together. But there are also fifty three different minorities in China, uh, not just Xinjiang. And the Chinese were very sensitive about you know say, having anyone accuse them of cultural um, you know suppression. So these cultures were, uh, you know, largely allowed to do their own thing, uh, maintain their languages, many of their customs. For instance, there's one tribe, uh, the, the gun, <laughs> these long guns are, are essential. They're not only about hunting, they're also about uh, the, the whole character. So they're allowed to keep their guns. Right? Why? Because it was like, anyone else in China? No, I'm sorry, you can't have a gun. It also came in, when it came to the one child principle, for instance, there was no such uh, limitation when it came to minorities. And in Xinjiang, uh, you could have uh, multiple wives according to customs there, and you could have many children. The difficulty there, though, is that this was largely farming, agricultural things. And with modern China came a life expectancy that started out at about 42 and is now uh, 76. That means people don't die in infancy, right? So if you have six kids, maybe in the old days, you'd expect two or three to survive. Now, you know, you have six kids, six kids is what you're going to end up with, or, you know, uh, most of them. As a result, how do you divide up land among six children? Right. And it becomes very difficult. A lot of the children were uh, in agriculture areas. Uh, children are cheap labor. <laughs> and that's not just in, in China. It's true everywhere. You go to India, any place. Uh, and it can be very attractive. They also kind of a built in pension plan because you expect you take care of your children and you expect your children to take care of you when you get older. So in Xinjiang, things progress a little differently. Um, they kind of go their own way. There were some crackdowns before uh, where when they had problems. Uh, often the uh, automatic response was to send in the army and bring about order, you know, get these things in line. But that wasn't working. So then they tried a softer touch and they said, well, we'll give incentives. Then they went back to the crackdown after these attacks, uh, you know, a few years ago. And, um, you know, basically in 2013, uh, in that time, there was, there was a lot of activity. Um, and they said, look, we have to do something. So they said, what we're going to do is make everybody learn uh, Han Chinese. And they're going to also have to learn a trade because we cannot have a situation where people are floating around, they have no income, and they're trapped because they don't know a language, so they can't go anywhere and get a job. The only thing they could do is either strum instruments, dance, or work in a bakery or, or a restaurant. So they said that this, this is not going to work out long term. So their plan was, okay, we're going to set up schools like they did in other parts of China. Everybody has to learn Han Chinese, all right, as their primary language. They didn't say you can't speak <laughs> the local Uyghur language. They just said you have to learn uh, things. And you have to learn about the history. You have to learn that you're part of one China, that you're not a separate country. Because there are other elements there uh, kind of fanned by al-Qaeda and a lot of these terrorist organizations said, no, 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 you're part of a Turkic empire. Uh, you don't belong to China. This land that you're in belongs to you and this larger Turkic empire. And 
you know, China certainly doesn't want anybody trying to claim that the land there belongs to somebody else. Uh, the the Turkic, I mean, the the Uyghurs came into China. There's no indication that they were there. They came into China. They accepted they were going into a into a foreign land. They settled there. They became part of China. But you can't use the fact that you went somewhere. It's like me going to your, my neighbor's house and sitting there for a few weeks and saying, "Well, you know, I've been here for a while. I'll tell you what, it's mine." <laughs> say, wait, 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 wait a second. <laughs> so um, they embarked on that. Now you you can criticize them that they uh, they been too harsh about it and things like that. But this idea that they were putting a million people into gulags and they were torturing and killing people. Well, where's the evidence? Um, you know, I, I would challenge somebody who really is interested in this to do a small check. Go through any allegations that are being made. It doesn't matter from the White House or the UN. All right. They still reference an article or a study. Dig down. See, see which studies all right, are referenced by those studies or which individuals are referenced. Right? What you'll do is you'll come back about 90% of the time to a gentleman named Adrian Zenz. Now, a Adrian is interesting. He was uh, what we could be best described as a failed academic. He was heading an institution that was allowed in Germany that was allowed to have vocational education, not only it was not working. Uh, at one time, there was a quarter of one student, but it, it absolutely not working. Uh, he is a very, very, very conservative Christian evangelical. He's written books where he makes it clear that women should not have equal rights. All right, children, uh, corporal punishment for children is, is good, and that if you don't believe in his particular idea of God, that you are going to hell. Now, this is a strange person to become suddenly in 2018 an expert on Uyghurs who are Muslim, who by his own things are all going to hell. Why would he care so much about Muslims if he thinks uh, God, you know, they are expendable in God's eyes? But, you know, there, there is he. He's now employed by something called the Jamestown Foundation, right? Jamestown Foundation started by Bill Casey, head of the CIA, in order to find jobs for Soviet defectors, right? Because they were kind of rattling when they'd come to the U.S., had nothing to do. So they created this foundation. And there, and so it's clearly a CIA foundation. It's supported by the CIA and uh, other groups supported by the CIA. Uh, CIA, as we all know, is very good at disinformation. So here you have this gentleman who was responsible not only for the one million uh, person number, which was based on interviewing eight people. I, I'm not kidding. I kid you not. Go back, read the study. He interviewed eight people. Based on that, he extrapolated that there are a million people in, in these gulags in China. Right? He also said that uh, there's, there's slave labor in, in China. He, he knows all these things. He hasn't been there but, uh, recently, but he knows all these things. And he says, where does he get it from? Well, he works very close with a group that is uh, involved in trying to create an independent Uyghur homeland. Surprise, surprise. He's also the one who says that women's reproductive rights are being taken from them, that they have these forced hysterectomies and all this stuff. So it is worth questioning. How an evangelical who believes that Muslims are going to hell is, quote, their champion and by himself comes up with all of these allegations. And you don't have to believe me. Just go through. Right. You know, start off and say, OK, they cite this study. Uh, that study cites this study, cites this one, cites this one. You'll see a lot of circular references uh, after a while. But then it all comes back to our friend Adrian. So at this at this juncture, um, I can say that I've actually been to Xinjiang. I was there in 2014, a few days after I left. The hotel that I was uh, in uh, was bombed. <laughs> so, and when I was there in 2014, it was tense. Uh, there were army uh, tanks, uh, troop carriers, uh, sprinkled around town. Every intersection was manned by uh, police, police army. They had machine guns. 
And it was very tense. People were still walking on the streets and things like that. But you could, you could sense the nervousness of what's going on. Now, they weren't there just, you know, they were there because of what had happened in 2013. So thereafter, they, they did have it. Now, when I went back um, about oh, eight, nine months ago, I had the opportunity to go and talk to uh, a lot of people. But most importantly, I used my eyes. Um, you know, a lot of the tours that you go there are very heavily supervised. So you're not certain if you're being shown what they want to sh- you, you to see or whether you, you know, are, are seeing the real thing. So, I, you know, we, we didn't follow the, the local handlers at all. Um, there was always an excuse to just meet somebody on the street, invite ourselves to their home, literally. I was always surprised that they were so welcoming, <laughs> given that this was a, a television station. And as a result of that, we had to cover vast differences. Uh, distances. We had to go through uh, Kashgar things. Now, during my things, I, I mean, I think I saw one police car over a series of almost a week, uh, actually in plain sight. Now, do they have more CCTV cameras? Absolutely. But they have a lot in London as well. Um, it's, I think London has a few more than <laughs> Xinjiang does. Anyway, um, what I saw there were uh, children playing in the alleyways. I didn't see people afraid. I talked to people uh, people who just had children. Uh, in fact, the couple that we talked to who had just welcomed their third child, a baby girl, they said, look, this is it. I said, well, you don't want to have more children? Isn't it the custom to have more? Is somebody trying to pressure you? I said, no, 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 no. I wanted a girl. I have two boys. I wanted a girl. Now it's finished. He says, my children are going to college. She had a job. Her husband had a job. And she was quite uh, clear that she was going to get her kids into college. And the grandfather, who basically had a third grade education, he said, oh, wouldn't it be wonderful if my daughter could be a doctor? So th- th- this is not the uh, kind of people that you imagine under the hard heel of Gustavo's type uh, repression. Um, they're very interested in uh, a middle class life and providing more for their children. Uh, they now speak enough uh, Han Chinese so that they can get by and, and they have more op- options in terms of work, not only in Xinjiang, but also outside. So they're not trapped in an area where, in essence, they could be just either agricultural workers uh, or, you know, making bread or something like this. They have more economic options. So I, I think the reality is quite different. But is, is the Chinese government sometimes at fault here? I would say yes. I mean, they're very nervous. I mean, I'll give you an example. I, I went and talked to uh, one, of the, one of the, they have two chief spokespeople uh, in Xinjiang. One is Uyghur, one is Han. And we had some time to interview them. And you know, I said, well, you know, why? I, I've been around here. I haven't seen anything. I, I went to a place that was a former, identified as a former gulag, but I saw that it was, it was right next door to a primary school in the middle of a residential district. <laughs> not the kind of place where, you know, you're torturing people and beating them, things like that. So, um, you know, and, and I saw this, it was a formerly you know, high school. They had temporarily turned it into a language school and then they had um, uh, turned it, now they're in the process of turning it back into a high school. Uh, not surprising, they needed it um, for the kids. Um, but I said, look, I, I looked around, I don't see any reason why you're keeping uh, journalists out. He said, well, let, let's tell you a story. He said, you know, we, when it first started, we invited in a large, lot of the larger news groups. Uh, and they came in and they said that what they wanted to do, and we try to be accommodating. You know, of course, this is their narrative. I try to be accommodating. He said, and then at the end, he uh, said, have you seen everything? They said, yes. They had a very friendly final dinner. Everybody was, you know, uh, you know, very friendly, smiling, uh, see you next time. If you come to Beijing, let me know, this type of thing. And then what came out of it afterwards shocked them. All of a sudden, there are these grainy little photos. You know, I don't know what it was. It wasn't even a cell phone. Who knows what it was? Grainy photos of buildings with barbed wire and saying, these are concentration camps. Okay. What are the chances that the local authorities are going to take you to a concentration camp? <laughs> I mean, if, if there was such a thing. And the, the, the narrative turned absolutely poisonous. 
So as a result, uh, a lot of the people up there are very, very, you know, very, very careful. They don't want to be put in the situation. Now, you have to understand in China, they have, a, you know, there's so many people. And there's this kind of idea. It, says, it doesn't matter if you're unlucky or if you're incompetent, because no one wants somebody who's unlucky on their team. And certainly, of course, no one wants anyone who's incompetent. So if something happens on your watch, you're held responsible. And I mean, it's going to end your career. I mean, you might go sideways, but you'll never go up. So yeah, local uh, publicity officials are very, very leery about allowing foreign journalists in because they were bitten, right? Once bitten, you know, shame on you. If, if, if I allow you to bite me twice, then shame on me. So at, at this juncture, it's unfortunate. I'm hoping uh, that more journalists will be allowed to go up there and see what the situation is and judge for themselves. But I, I do think that uh, given the state of international media, it's very hard. If you know, almost on a daily basis, you see the kind of bias that's out there. It's not reporting anymore. It's basically opinionating. Uh, they, they give their opinion and then they look for facts to back it up. Uh, China's evil. Part of that is that journalists feel threatened by China. And I understand why, because in a democracy, journalists are the fourth estate. They are essential to a democracy. They are the ones who shine the light in the darkest corners where you have political dealings, um, you know, corruption and things like that. They're necessary because you have two parties fighting each other or multiple parties fighting each other for power. And there is no good way of having accountability. But in China, they have a one party system. The party has to keep accountability. So they have these, uh, you know, they have their anti-corruption campaigns, which have been very, very uh, thorough and serious. Uh, and you can see that in the reaction of people. 90% of the people in China think that the, uh, the central government is doing a good idea. Not always, though. There's a lot of restivity about uh, um, the issue with uh, the pandemic. Uh, people keep looking at the West and saying, oh, if they open up, why can't we? Um, it brings up this issue that it's a science thing. It's not a political thing. You know, in the U.S. They tr and Great Britain, they tried the political thing. Oh, we'll just open up. Ah, a few people die, whatever. You know, ah, we can cut Social Security. Uh, you know, we can cut down the national health because these people, you know, uh, they're going to die at some point anyways. You know, we've got to keep the economy going. And a very, very different attitude has been exhibited by the pandemic. Because in the West, it's always been about the economics. And economics are seen as the key to taking care of people. You know, the capitalist system, the magic, uh, <laughs> magic of the market will heal all things. This is a central belief to capitalism, right? So everything is measured in GDP and whether or not it's going up. No one seems to pay attention that the GDP continues to go up, but real wages for the majority of people, including the lower middle classes continue to go sideways or even down. Right. In China, it's the other way around. They're looking, they want to increase, they think that the economy serves the people. Right. It's just a completely different area. They turn it around. It's not A or B, either you care about people or economics. The question is, how do you arrange them? What is the emphasis? So they say, we're a socialist nation. We put people's uh, matters first, right? And then we use uh, economic tools to create what is needed. And they've been very successful at that for the last 40 years. I mean, uh, um, you know, 800 million people out of poverty, uh, no more extreme poverty, um, rising disposable income, uh, rising living standards, rising uh, you know, longevity in terms of how long you're, you can expect to live. So they see that is more important. So there's always a kind of a miss when these two sides talk, because the West says, you know, you, you're, you're threatening the world because you're not opening up the markets and your thing. Although it's kind of odd. They say, you know, you should open up. But on the other hand, we're not going to allow you to have chips and we're going to try to contain you. <laughs> we think that you're awful and that you steal everything. Uh, I, I never quite know which 
narrative they're pushing that day. I have to read the full article before I understand whether they're saying China's horrible and should be wiped off the face of the earth because they're not the kind of people we want in our neighborhood, or whether it's, gee whiz, we need them. You know, they provide one third of the world's total growth. They're essential. They're being selfish by not opening up and allowing their people to die. <laughs> so thanks. And just one added thing. It's the reason China hasn't, uh, there's two reasons why China hasn't opened up. One is they, you basically need people, the majority of your people vaccinated within the last six months with either vaccination or booster. Because after six months, these, you know, the current vaccines kind of wear off. So you have a situation where if you haven't had one in six months, you're now increasingly more vulnerable. So they need to get about 60% of the people to have a shot within the last six months. Then under normal COVID, they can do it. But this, the other thing that is worrying them is something called long COVID. Long COVID is uh, affecting, it's, it's, it's between 6 and 8% of the population get it. For instance, there's uh, 17 million people in Europe who have long COVID. But that's defined as two months. You know, you're still having symptoms after two months. The really thing that they're concerned about is that there are people who are exhibiting continuing systems one year and more afterwards, and they're not recovering, right? They know that there's damage to the internal organs and that this will affect the life expectancy, also the amount of hospital care. But really worrying is these people aren't able to work. And this is about 3% of the population. So can you imagine taking 3% of the population and they can't work anymore. And instead of being productive and adding to society, they're going to be a drag on society. They're going to need to be taken care of. So that's a huge swing. And if you start talking about 1.4 billion people and 3% of that, and taking them from the plus column to the minus column, that's a huge issue. So they're being very, very careful. They want to know more. But the problem is, you know, COVID is new. And we don't know enough about it. So making a decision at this time to open it up and say, oh, well, 3% of people get it, so what? It's, that's not the way they think about it. It might be the way they think about it uh, in you know, cultures that are dominated by uh, you know, capitalism, free market, which is whatever happens, happens. So that's it. That's now, okay, what was the original question again? <laughs> I've, I've digressed. <laughs> Don't worry. The, yes. Um, the original question was um, about Xinjiang, whether the campaign has been successful. Um, we did speak about Adrian Sands, which is interesting because I myself has, have seen that name a lot. Um, I think what some people might say is that, okay, him aside, CIA links, whatever, what about the cases of Uyghurs who speak out about it and this is kind of like in the news there's been reports investigative journalism you know you kind of get that concern as well but the main question was um has this campaign been successful um has the region seen like less terrorist attacks and extremism yeah there ha there haven't been any terrorist attacks since uh for the last uh, three or four years uh since it, be it began this campaign uh in terms of individual experiences, I cannot say that there aren't things. Anytime you have a large movement like this, where you're putting people in control of other people and telling, giving them, you know, things, get these people educated, get them, you know, will abuses take occur? Yes. They occur in prisons, they occur in schools, they occur in, you know, in your workplace. There's always some bad actor in there who likes to use power and things like that. So I would be shocked if there weren't uh, instances uh, where there were uh, bad things happening. Um, but it's not the norm. And I can tell you, I've been on many shows uh, with one particular woman who heads the Uyghur Congress. And she's interesting to me because she originally, the first thing she would say is, my sister, a doctor, I can't talk to her. She's disappeared. Bad things have happened to her. And I, I say, well, I, I don't know. Uh, I, I don't know what to say. He says, you know, you're in a situation where you're, you have to give her the benefit of the doubt. Now, this went on for the oh, last couple of years, and then all of a sudden, her story changed. And it was, my entire family has been, uh, for years, has been uh, you know, persecuted, thrown in jail. No one can find them. I can't speak to anybody. Well, 
I'm just saying, small detail like, like that. Why are you only talking about your sister, the doctor, you can't be in communication with? When you are now saying that for years, it's been your entire family. I would assume that from the very beginning, she said, not just my sister, but my cousin, my brother, my this and that, and, and name these people and say they have been incarcerated. I cannot get a hold of them. She never said that. Now, I was, I worked in the prosecutor's office for years in term, and my two partners were uh, both prosecutors, and I was a defense attorney. I pay a lot of attention to what people say, right? And when somebody says something that's a little odd, it kind of tips a little, you know, red flag in my, in my head. And I asked her, I said, well, why are you only bringing this forward now? And she said, why? Why? You know, I'm, I was protecting them or something like along these lines. I, I didn't know exactly. She wasn't interested in protecting her sister. She was only, it didn't make any sense to me. But I'm saying that people who have a, a political ideology or goal, they want independence for Xinjiang. I think most of them believe that they're doing the right thing, right? I mean, you know, they have their views. I have my views, et cetera. The Chinese have theirs. Everyone has a different view on this. But this idea that the Uyghurs have been systematically tortured and beaten down and all this kind of stuff is nonsense. Yes, they are suffering from the fact that a lot of Han have moved into uh, Xinjiang over the years and are now almost 50%. And as a result, there's more competition for jobs. But they have brought, they came there because there were jobs, okay? Because the economy is booming. It's one of the largest tourist uh, destinations. Uh, it was a few years before 2019, it was the number one. People were just flocking up there. So now also a little at odds with the idea that we have terrorists, I mean, we have, you know, death camps scattered around <laughs> Xinjiang. That might be noticeable to a few tourists and say, what's that? Why are those people dead? Why are they beating those people? You know, Chinese take notice of that. If you ever watch uh, uh, Chinese media, social media, I mean, goodness, they, do, they notice everything and they have a handy camera to, uh, to put it on, uh, to record it. So, you know, and the economy itself, because of the natural resources, because of policies that the Chinese government has pursued. I mean, people talk about Xinjiang cotton and, you know, the solar industry and things like that. Well, the Chinese government moved the solar factories to Xinjiang to provide jobs for the Xinjiang people. And it wasn't at reduced wages. In fact, it was the other way around. Companies actually got preferential policies for moving up there, employing Uyghurs, all right? They would get a subsidy from the government. So this idea that, you know, the, the Uyghurs are being forced to work in these things is nonsense. This is their lifeblood. You take that away from them, what? You want to send them back to the farms that uh, are too small to support them? I, I, I never quite understand what people are proposing for Xinjiang. All right, they say, oh, what they, they should have a, a a vote and then vote to move out of China. I mean, next, what do we do in uh, in London or <laughs> Scotland? I mean, the whole world always has a reason why we shouldn't be with them, right? Lombardy, they don't like. Uh, you know, the rest of Italy, doesn't mean that they should succeed, right? But that is up to individual countries. China's not going to let go of uh, a landmass, which is massive, about a quarter of their, um, you know, total area, just kind of walk away because uh, some people say, well, I just want to be independent, right? You know, you, in that case, what, Shanghai becomes an independent city like uh, Singapore? Uh, Beijing says, well, we're the capital, but, you know, we're going to handle our own affairs in our own way. You know, it, it's never ending. You, you have countries, there has to be some way in which they can rule themselves, and they make the rules. It's not up to an international tribunal. And where we've seen that, where you've seen the U.S. try to move in, or other countries try to in and impose their systems, it hasn't worked. Right? It just hasn't. It didn't work in Afghanistan. What you have 20 years later is a broken country, spent $2 trillion, people are starving, and no one seems to care. And yet this was going to be uh, an example of how America shows the world how we can impose our values on other people, and it will be successful. No one acknowledges it. No one even talks about the massive failure that this represents in terms of uh, you know, what the United States, where is the international press? 
Yes, they cover that people are starving occasionally, all right? But not in depth. Everything's about Ukraine. So in the global south, there's this feeling that unless you're white, you really don't count. If, if, if you're a Middle Eastern or Chinese or African, South American, well, you're not quite whites. Therefore, why should we be that interested in it? And, you know, and, and I'm not saying that it's true, right? And I think most, the majority of people are good-hearted and that they try to um, you know, be fair to everybody. But when you have these kind of narratives, this exposure on the international press, it really brings into question how fair people are being. Right. Are, are these journalists or are they editorialists? Which one is it? I'm not a journalist. I editorialize. So you can take anything I say with a grain of salt. But you should certainly, if you have questions, please you know, look up what I've said and test it. See if there is grounds for that. I don't want to say things purely because I feel this way and I think that's the way it should be. No. There are facts and figures, you draw your own conclusions. And that's all that I want people to do. Not that they agree with me, but they simply question what is going on, not in some vast conspiratorial you know, rat's nest of, of things, just in terms of, well, who is benefiting? Who is losing? What's happening here? What has happened? Let's just look at the basic facts. And then perhaps that can influence your thinking. Certainly. I actually spoke about that in my last episode where some coverage even of the Ukraine war seems to be more like a press release rather than actual um, report that questions or just asks more uncomfortable questions about the conflict. Um, I have two more questions from listeners that we're going to quickly round up to. Um, so one of them is we of course know what American officials think of Chinese officials and vice versa. So the question is from a listener, he's asking, what do the majority of people in China think about Americans? Well, you know, that, that's the thing. I mean, if you had asked me this question in 2008, I would assure, assured you that they admired America. They admired, um, it was a different system. There appeared to be more freedoms, right? Uh, also, financially, the U.S. was way ahead of China. And there was this belief that, you know, America really understood finance. Goldman Sachs was God. You know, they could magically make money. They wanted, I mean, everybody was sending their kids to get MBA programs and study finance in the United States or a UK or wherever. Uh, they wanted their children to learn this powerful magic. And then 2008 and nine comes. And the United States drops its pants in front of the whole world with a financial crisis that was completely preventable. Uh, I, I, I know I, I worked for his election campaign, but Bill Clinton gave up a very valuable uh, piece of legislation, the Glass-Steagall Act, which made sure this was something that was passed after the uh, during in the result of the Great Depression in the United States uh, back in the 30s. Because what happened is banks, insurance companies, and brokerages were allowed to combine, which means they were playing with the money of, of ordinary people. <clears throat> and it didn't end up well, as we can see from the Great Depression. Uh, that law was passed to create safeguards. Bill Clinton gave it up. And as a result, a few years later, lo and behold, we have a financial crisis. Why? Because these entities were collaborating to make fees. They, didn't, they, weren't, they weren't trying to bring down the system. They just cared about making fees because the fees went into their bonuses. So everybody was benefiting who was part of the process. The only people who were losing was everybody else who wasn't. So at that juncture, uh, it's, it's, most of the Chinese said, look, um, I still value what America can offer in terms of critical thinking uh, about independence, about you know, worldliness. Uh, but we're not going to necessarily believe that uh, the U.S. has the answers in terms of, uh, of the uh, finances. Also, other things were bothering us. Uh, I mean, the, the whole thing with Afghanistan, uh, Iraq, never understood Iraq. Why were you going into Iraq? The Iraq was not a threat to you. They had no weapons of mass destruction. And since that time, Iraq has been irretrievably broken. I shouldn't say irretrievably. Right now, they're trying really hard to, to get, come to it. But you know, a lot of their 
oil assets are being, in, from, from their perspective, stolen uh, by foreign forces, uh, U.S. being chief amongst them. And, they, you know, they look at Afghanistan, the U.S. walking away. Uh, they look at the constant pressure ever since China has become more successful, right, but hasn't embraced the same system as the U.S. or had a regime change, which seemed to be more to the point of what a lot of people thought in Washington back in 2001 when China joined the WTO. There were people who said, as soon as we introduce um, capitalism to China, democracy will follow as if they're irretrievably uh, bound together, you know, super glue. You can't have one without the other. But China prospered without following that system, by following their own system. And that has led to this kind of idea of an existential threat uh, uh, to America's system. So that's where they are. So at, the, at this juncture, there's a lot of animus. The, the people of China are increasingly not hostile. I'm an American. I mean, they're not openly hostile to me, but they're not certainly as friendly and outgoing as they used to be. You know, there's there's always a quick look at me when I say I'm an American, and I don't hide that I'm an American. I'm proud to be an American. Um, but it is different. And they they read uh, the newspapers. They are aware that the majority of the world, because not the world, the developed world, is critical of them. You see it in these pew. Uh, Pew Research uh, form uh, surveys, where they're constantly showing that it's increasing that um, perceptions of China being driven in, in their minds by governments who are ideological and the press, which doesn't seem, which seems to be, as you say, uh, putting out press releases for these governments as opposed to doing uh, real work. Um, and they say, well, if they don't like us, I, I guess we don't like them. I, I don't, you know, it's hard to like somebody who doesn't like you and expresses it on a daily basis. Um, you know, saying that you want to contain China. You know, the Chinese are, wait a second, you told us hard work would bring us, uh, you know, out, that we would be, you know, we could join the world if we just worked hard and played by the rules. And but. You know, all now it's like, oh, you never obeyed the rules. You, you know, who cares if you worked hard? You're, you're not part of our system. You're, you're, you're a threat. And so, yes, there, there is a lot of, of feeling that the, you know, there's a distance now between the government here is trying to remedy that. I mean, the interesting thing, people think that it's the Chinese government who's hostile to the world. No, Chinese people. You talk to them about Taiwan. Most of them will say, get it over with, go over there, teach these guys a lesson. You know, they're Chinese. What are they doing? Why are they, why are they colluding with these foreigners? All right. Why, why aren't they being true Chinese? Right. So they're very conservative on a lot of issues. Even Xinjiang says, why are we wasting time and money? You know, no one has extra policies. I'm Han Chinese. No one helps me. Right. Why, why are they giving all these policies? So it's the government, which is the moderating force. And they're the ones now who are pushing this people-to-people -people diplomacy, especially after, you know, because of the pandemic, everyone's been cut off. It's much easier to believe ill of somebody if you haven't seen them in a long time. So they're pushing very hard to reestablish this. Uh, let's hope uh, that it, it helps. I mean, people are people. Uh, this idea that you can villainize somebody because of their color of their skin or where they, their, their nation. I mean, it, it, and we think about that. It's foolish. We all, all love our children, love our parents. You know, we, we want to enjoy a, a decent life. That's what unites us. You know, we're afraid of climate warming. Well, not everybody, but, um, you know, most people are. So, you know, we don't want war. Uh, so those are the important things. We're just trying to get by in life. We're all on a road. We're just trying to get by. Uh, have a better life for ourselves and our children. I mean, that should unite us, but for some reason, between governments and the, apparently the press, it's a uh, reason to divide us. Yes, of course. And that's the whole point of kind of these interviews to kind of dig out the more uncomfortable truths, different views that we don't have access to as easily. Um, we're wrapping up shortly. Thank you again so much for your time. I just had one question, the last one. If you can just sum up in a sentence or two and 
it was from a listener asking how does China view its relationship with the Gulf states? Very positively, China is their number one customer. And you can see the economic gravity is going east. So are the markets. So is the oil. Uh, you can expect that to continue. Thank you so much, Mr. Tangum. Um, it's been a pleasure having you on this episode. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. Join us again next week for a new episode.